Not moving. Hmm. Try again, once more. Can't be that there's anything wrong with the Mac, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it's not moving. was working early, wasn't it? Um, might be good, yeah. Look, have you got a remote or not? <laughs> so, uh, sorry about this technological difficulty. Um, welcome everybody again and uh, what an introduction and uh, I don't know what you can say to that. It's uh, Rogan's always got a little kicker there at the end. So, um, yeah. Um, we're continuing with our study in 2 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 3 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So you can turn to that in your Bibles if you like, or the verses will hopefully come up on the screen. So I'm going to have to have a little... Um, yeah, I'm going to have to have a little... Um, code, I think, to, um, if I go like that, that's to move it on. Is that all right? So, um, okay, let's, let's uh, I just want to, I just want to describe someone to you, and then I want you to tell me if you would say this person is successful. Um, he's been arrested many times, he's been in and out of prison. Sounds successful to you? He's often been run out of town. He's never built a building, he's never spoken on television, he never had a website, doesn't have Facebook, never owned his own home, moved around um, pretty much all his life, um, wasn't the greatest public speaker, not very impressive to look at, uh, got involved with public controversies, um, preached for hours at a time, who am I talking about? Paul. Doesn't sound like a successful person when you describe it that way, but I want to ask the question, is, was his ministry successful? And how do we measure success in ministry? When I talk about ministry, I'm talking about serving the Lord. So that word ministry, diakonos in Greek, means servant. And we're all serving the Lord. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, then we are all involved in serving him. And we should be. So... In your ministry, 
How do you measure success? And that's the question that Paul faced in 2 Corinthians. He, uh, he had to justify himself, really, as an apostle, or sent one by the Lord Jesus, because there was a group of critics that had basically taken over the church, and they'd filling the minds with um, people's minds with accusations about Paul's character and about his conduct. And so Paul opens up here, in these first seven chapters, remember Bill's outline, the apostle and his ministry. And I want to ask Paul some questions this morning, and I want to see what chapter three, what answers he provides in chapter three. So here's the three questions. Let's give you these questions. I want you to think about your own situation as you serve the Lord today. And the answers that he gives, I know are going to be helpful for us as we try and answer these questions. So here's the first one. How do you measure success in ministry? Secondly, what is our ministry? And thirdly, what results do you expect from your ministry? How do you measure success? Well, the first thing Paul says here is that successful ministry does not depend on self-commendation. This is what he says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves? This is verse 1. Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He's really saying, I don't need to boast and I don't need a letter of reference to prove the validity of my ministry. So success is not about self-commendation. You know, some of us remember the days um, in the churches I grew up in where you had to take a letter of commendation to another church and that letter would commend you to that church obviously like uh, to the saints gathered at such and such an assembly you know uh, dearly beloved we uh, we commend to you our brother John um, you know who is in fellowship with this assembly receive him as becometh saints blah 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 sometimes it would be uh, you know receive our brother who is in happy fellowship and sometimes it would be happy and active fellowship, and that was code for you could get him to preach. <laughs> and Paul's saying, do I need those letters? No, I don't need those letters, because successful ministry, serving the Lord, is not about self-commendation. I don't need the letters. You know, we have all sorts of things that we put, put really value in today. We value university degrees. You know, we get our theological, oh, well, that's a, that's a letter of recommendation, isn't it? Paul doesn't say that. Or church size. Sometimes we get, you know, it's not long before we have a conversation with someone. Where do you go? Oh, what what church? How big's your church? Um, Interestingly, Paul never gives any statistics about church attendance. uh, Because, I think partly because this. It's not about decisions, it's about disciples. So decisions are great, but the great commission by the Lord Jesus is about making disciples It's not simply about a decision, it's about transformation in the life. Sometimes we get carried away by how the people we know, the connections we have, how influential people we know are. But Paul says, no, none of these. I don't look for any of these. I don't look for any letters of recommendation. I'm not looking for the applause of the world because that's not the true measure of success because God has a different idea about what successful ministry is and there it is. There, number two, successful ministry is about changed lives. In verses two and three, Paul says this, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. 
written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. And as far as Paul was concerned, that's the real proof of his ministry. Changed lives. As he preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit applied it to the hearts of the people that he preached to in Corinth. And people believed in the Lord Jesus. They trusted him. They turned from their life of sin and they trusted him. Believed in him as their saviour. And their lives were completely changed. Corinth was a city that you could truly say anything goes. Sort of the Ibiza of the, the ancient world, ancient Greece. It was given over to, it was a pagan city given over to idol worship and gross immorality. So when the gospel entered with the promise of life transformation through the power of Jesus Christ, sinners were converted and they were radically changed. Radically changed. And that's what Paul wrote about in his first letter to the Corinthians. You may not remember way back then, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is what he said. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Whew. That's not the end of the story. This is what he goes on to say. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what some of you were, but not anymore. Christianity is about genuine conversion. It's about transformation. Can you imagine in Corinth where there was an idol idol worshipper? He's come to Christ and his friends are hanging out at the temple of Aphrodite. And they're wondering what's happened to him. Why didn't he come around anymore? Why didn't he participate in, in the immoral escapades with all the priestesses attached to the temple? Why didn't he offer sacrifices? Why didn't he join in the celebrations? What's happened to him? And you come across him and he says this. I met some people. They told me about Jesus. I turned from my sinful life and I'm following him and he's changed my life completely. And that's what we believe. Christians firmly believe that Jesus Christ can do it, that he can transform lives, that he has the life-changing power, that only he has the life-changing power to transform your life from the inside out. And that's what happened to those first century believers at Corinth. And it could happen to you today if you don't know the Lord Jesus and you're here this morning. And maybe you're sensing that God is calling you to turn and to trust the Saviour. Let's be encouraged not to give up on our friends and our family members who don't know the Lord. How did this radical change take place among those who heard his message? Well, let's go to the next slide. There's all these things that characterise them. They're visibly different. Paul says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Isn't it wonderful when your conversion is so real that people see the change in you. People see the change. You cannot deny the change in that person's life. They were visibly different. They become followers of Christ. You show that you are a letter from Christ, verse 3. They were, it was plain and clear that they were now followers of Jesus Christ. They were supernaturally changed, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God. They had not been changed by joining a church. They had not been changed by walking the aisle or signing a card. 
Those things don't have the power to change us. Only the Holy Spirit working within us can bring about that transformation, can write God's truth in our hearts. They were internally transformed, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The Ten Commandments were written on stone and had become the rule for ancient Israel, for life in ancient Israel. So if you wanted to know, well, is it okay to steal from my neighbour? The answer was, what do the tablets say? And rules can do many things. They can tell you right and wrong. They can provide guidance in difficult situations. But only the gospel can change from the inside out. And Christians are living epistles. You are a living epistle, a living letter from Christ that anyone can read. Jesus is the writer. The Holy Spirit is the ink. You are the letter. What sort of letter are you? So what's the real mark of successful ministry? It must be lives changed by the preaching of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the measure of successful ministry is all about. Paul said, if you want to know about my ministry, check out the people who heard my preaching and turned to Christ. Look at what God has done in their lives. That's the measure. Changed lives. Changed lives. That's the measure for us here too at Budrum. It's a measure in our own lives. Maybe, you know, sometimes in our cap ministry, we actually have, we have targets for people coming to faith. And I always say to them, why don't you have a target that says people who made a decision are still going on 12 months' time? Because it's all about discipleship. It's all about that changing transformation. We'll come to that um, a little bit later. But something else about successful ministry... We go to the next slide. Successful ministry relies on God to do the work. And verses 4 and 5 say this. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Our competence comes from God. The proof is changed lives by the Holy Spirit. Who does the changing? The Holy Spirit, who is God. He arranges things so we get the honour and privilege of sharing the gospel as we serve him. To, to us is committed the ministry of reconciliation where we are to go out to the world, to our friends, to our neighbours, to people we come in contact and say, be reconciled to God. We do the preaching. God does the saving. My success entirely depends on the Lord, not in part but in full. Okay, let's go to the second question. So how do you measure success in ministry? Next slide. What is our ministry? And Paul goes on to answer this in the following verses, 6 to 11. Um, what is our ministry? Well, oftentimes when you ask that question, what do you think of? <coughs> if I was to say to you today, what's your ministry? You might say to me, well, uh, my ministry's here at Budroom. Or my ministry is, uh, I'm, I'm involved with men's ministry or women's ministry or children's ministry for those who are thinking about the children's ministry. You might say that's, that's, that's your ministry. Uh, might be cap ministry, whatever. You, that's what we say, don't we? Um, might be social media, online ministry. But that's not what Paul's talking about here so much because that's the context in which we serve the Lord. Okay? It's not really, in a sense, the heart of what our ministry is. It's, it's how we serve. It's, it's the context in which we serve. 
Um, what is at the core, though, of our ministry? Well, Paul reminds us in these verses that we're ministers or servant of the new covenant. It's our privilege and responsibility to preach to the lost so that, as Paul says in the following chapter in verse 4, he says that they might see, they might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's our ministry, to share the gospel and to see the gospel outworked in people's lives, to see people come to faith and to see people move on in their faith and don't forget about ourselves because that's where it must begin. The gospel needs to outwork in my life. It's not about decision so much as it is about discipleship. Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's the only verb in that particular Great Commission. And as we read through these verses, I want you to notice something. How many times the word glory or glorious is mentioned? Uh, the false teachers were probably saying the law is glorious. I was probably saying it at Corinth. What Paul's saying is, yeah, but what Jesus gives us is more glorious. We've got a message to tell that is greater than anything, any other message in this world today. Do you believe that? We have the best message to tell, a message of hope to a, a dying or lost world. And the first thing about Paul's message, what, what this message is about, Paul says, is about life instead of death in verses 6 to 8. And it would seem that um, there's a group of false teachers who'd convinced the Corinthians of the, of the glory of, the, the, of Moses' day. They spoke so much about Moses and about the law and about the commandments that somehow Christ seemed to be diminished in the process. And in replying to these false teachers, Paul does not denigrate the work of Moses. He does not denigrate the law. He makes this important point. We should be grateful for the blessings because Jesus has given us so much, something so much more glorious than anything we had in the past. This is what he says. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? What's Paul talking about here? You read these verses before, and what, what is going on here? What he's referring to is the old covenant, the covenant that God made with his people Israel in the Old Testament when they came to Sinai. <clears throat> and when he talks about the letter, the apostles talking about the old covenant, the covenant that God made with them prior to the coming of Christ, and with particular emphasis on the law of Moses or the law that was given through Moses as the mediator. Why does the letter kill then? Well, it's lethal because of this fact. When we make the law uh, the basis for the way of salvation, it leads to death spiritually. There's no life. Because that is a way of self-effort, living up to this law. It's the way of death. All the end result of those who try and climb to heaven by striving to be moral high achievers are brought up short because of their own failure. 
No one ever has been brought to a saving relationship with God through striving on their own, through their own efforts in trying to keep the law. And yet that is at the heart of most of the world's religions and worldviews. A striving, a sense of self-effort, a sense of earning a position, a right to be before God. But Paul says the way of that is the way of death. But on the other hand, he says, by, when he says by the Spirit, Paul's got in mind the new covenant that is inaugurated by the death of Jesus, God's Son, in the place of us as sinners. So the shedding of Jesus' blood is about the inauguration of this new covenant that God, this new agreement that God has with us, his people. Instead of regulations that no one could keep, the new covenant speaks about a vibrant way through the blood of Christ where God, the Holy Spirit, comes to people and changes them, changes them, giving them the ability to do what they could not do in their own strength. It gives them new desires. It gives them a new heart, a new direction that people want to follow him, that people want to do his law. And, of course, the guiding principle is the law of Christ, which is love, love for God, love for others. That becomes our guiding principle. The more we have a set of rules up on the wall that we seek to follow, the more we will be conscious of our failure. But if we seek to live the law of Christ, which is to love God first and to hear his voice and to honour him and then to love others with the help of the Holy Spirit, I find myself doing things that I could not do in my own strength. Because if I really love you, I won't steal from you. That wouldn't be love. If I really loved you, I wouldn't want to take what was yours. I wouldn't want to lie to you because that's not love. And so love becomes the guiding principle of the spirit who indwells us so that we can do things, we can serve him with a freedom that we couldn't before. God said to Jeremiah when he was talking about this new covenant that he was going to write his law on our hearts, write his law on our hearts in Jeremiah 31. And the fundamental difference between the letter, the old covenant and the spirit, the new covenant, um, let, let me say this, Um, Paul does not say that God's law is bad or useless. So he never says that. He says it's good, far from it. It has many useful purposes, many good purposes. The law restrains sin. You think about the law of our land. It restrains sin. It shows us the way of holiness. When we think about God's law, it's an expression of who God is. It's God's law. It says something about him. It reveals to us our own sinfulness as we look at that law. So it has, it has some good purposes. But the law by itself can never change our hearts. It can never change your heart. It's like the, uh, the MRI scan or the CAT scan. It can reveal the cancer, but it does nothing to cure it. The law can tell me, don't, don't commit adultery. And I might fear the penalty... And because I fear the penalty, I might not do that. But that doesn't change my inner desires. Only the gospel can do that. The law is powerless by itself to change my heart. The law condemns, the law punishes, but it doesn't transform. And that's the difference between the old and the new covenant, is that the new covenant, based on the blood of Jesus Christ, makes a vast difference to those who turn to Christ 
gives me new life, new desires. I'm changed from the inside out, not to conform with some set of rules, but to change me, to change my heart. Under the old covenant, if you sought to have a standing before God by following the the law, and let's remember that wasn't the intent. God's people all the way down through the years have been saved by faith. So those who are genuine believers, all ages, are saved by the faith that Abraham had. And the Ten Commandments and the law was really given so that a people who were redeemed could express their dependence and their desire to follow God. But if you, under the old covenant, the harder you try to live up to the law, the more you fail. But now in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within us and creates those new desires to obey the law from the heart. The next thing Paul says is um, that it's, this new covenant is about justification instead of condemnation. And he says this, If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? It's a strange way to put it, isn't it? The ministry that condemns men is glorious. How can condemnation be glorious? It's a rather strange thing, isn't it? But the law upholds God's glory. So it upholds the glory of who he is, his character, by punishing those who do not meet those righteous demands because God is just. So the ministry that condemns is glorious because it shows God to be holy and just. And true to his character. It leaves us, that's what the law does, but it leaves us condemned, it leaves us guilty, but that's where the gospel comes in. What the law couldn't do, Christ has done for us. Rule, rule keeping produces guilt and leaves us spiritually dead. But when Christ enters the life, enters our life, we have new life. He, you see, Jesus met all the demands. What no one else in the world has been able to do, Jesus fulfilled the law, the law's demands. And not only did he fulfil the law, but he suffered for our infringement of the law. So you get that? Not only did he live this perfect life that no other person has ever been able to do, but he also took the punishment for our infringement of God's law. And he bore that himself. So that now when we believe, and now when we repent and accept him as Lord and Saviour, we are counted to be right with God. He takes our sin... And he gives what, what's ours, he takes our sin. He gives us what's his, his righteousness, his right standing before God. So we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and because Jesus has a right standing with God, so do we. Not because we earned it in any, any way whatsoever. How much more glorious then is this new covenant? And the next thing is this, that this new covenant, there's lasting glory instead of fading glory. This is what he says, verses 10 to 13. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. What's he getting at? Well, you may remember in um, Exodus chapter 34, Moses goes up the mount again uh, the second time. And uh, he receives the, the Ten Commandments on the tables, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. And when he comes down, his face shone. Some of the radiance of the glory of God stayed with Moses. And uh, he didn't seem to notice it, but the people looking at him could notice it, and they were, they were afraid. Why were they afraid? 
they hadn't probably seen it before, but then they'd seen the pillar of, you know, fire, you know. It's a bit like looking at the, at the sun, you know. It's just awesome, but it also says if you look at it for too long, you're going to be damaged. And I think it was a reminder, again, of the holiness of God, and there really was too much for them. Um, but Moses' glory, if you like, that he had when he came down to inaugurate this first, this, this first covenant, the old covenant, <clears throat> was temporary. It passed away. So he put a veil over his face um, and, until he went back into the presence of God. Uh, so the glory of God hung briefly to him so that the children of Israel couldn't look at steadily at the face of Moses. He wore a veil over his face to protect the children of Israel. Um, but that, that glory that Moses radiated, the glory of God from his face was a reflection of the infinitely greater glory of this resplendent God that we have. And even though it faded with the passage of time, his, his audience couldn't bear to look at it. But think about the glory that comes with the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Think about what he brings, something that lasts forever. And think about this. We're forgiven forever. We're justified, right standing with God, forever. We're redeemed forever. We're justified. We're we're reconciled forever. We're born again forever. How amazing is that? How much better is the new covenant? How much more glorious? That's the whole point of the new covenant. God writes his law on our hearts. He forgives our sins so that we might be saved forever. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 18 said this, Where these have been forgiven sins... There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. In other words, you do not now need another sacrifice for sin, unlike the Old Testament, unlike the Old Covenant that required sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sins forever. Remember the old chorus, some of you? And the blood shall never lose its power. No, never. No, never. Jesus' blood avails for sin forever and shall never lose its power. Jesus is all we need now and forever. And this is Paul's answer to those who wanted to go back to the law. Are you crazy? You are dead. Now you're alive. You are condemned. Now you're forgiven. All this is yours forever. Rejoice and give thanks to God. Why would anyone want to give this up? All right. On to the third question. What is our ministry? But what are the outcomes of our ministry? And here we come back to where Paul begins in the chapter. Because the outcomes, the expected results of us sharing the gospel and the Holy Spirit working is transformed lives, changed lives. And in these remaining verses, Paul fleshes this out. Let's just go through it. First one is this. The opening of spiritually blind hearts. We should expect to see the Spirit of God working as we preach the gospel... It's his work, remember, but we should expect him to open spiritually blinded people. The first thing he says is this, there's a veil placed over their hearts. He's talking about the Old Testament Israelites, but it's the same really for us today if we don't know the Lord. They cannot understand the gospel. This is what he says, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ... Is it taken away? Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. So Paul, in thinking about Moses' veil and thinking about that, he now uses the veil in a 
different way. Uh, he says, when the Jews listen to the reading of the Old Testament as they do every Sabbath day in the synagogue, a veil upon their eyes keeps them from seeing the real meaning of the scriptures that they are reading. So the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures point to Christ. The Old Testament scriptures as they read them ought to point them to their Messiah. But the veil keeps them from seeing that. And sadly today, in Israel today, that is still true. Whilst there are many coming to faith, messianic believers they call themselves, the majority still are in darkness and there is a veil. They cannot see Jesus as their Messiah. That veil becomes a symbol for Jewish unbelief. They do not believe in Jesus because there's a veil on their hearts And it's true for us today. Before we come to Christ, there's a veil of unbelief. There is something in the life of a person that is stopping them from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. So we ought not to get too frustrated. We ought not to get, you know, upset when people don't come to faith when we share the gospel. Because there's a blindness there. There's a blindness there. They cannot see this glory of the Lord Jesus. Uh, in the next chapter, Paul says this. He says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see the light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a, a veil there that Satan is behind, ensuring it stays in place. Uh, but only God can, um, cha- can open blind eyes. And this is what he says in verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when someone turns to the Lord... That veil is removed, that veil of unbelief, that veil that's stopping them from seeing the true glory of Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. When God's Spirit convicts a person of their sinfulness, of their brokenness and their need to be right with God, and they repent, they have a change of mind, this veil, this spiritual blindness is taken away, removed, and understanding and light floods in. We see light because God... His sovereign grace opens our eyes and causes us to see when we turn to him. Have you done that? Have you turned to him? Salvations of the Lord. It flows from his love and his grace, streams from his heart of mercy for us. This great river of grace that cascades from the cross and is our hearts and gives us eyes to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says this, another outcome When God opens our spiritual eyes, there's liberty. This is what he says. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When someone turns to Christ, there's real freedom. There's freedom from the penalty of sin. And there's this freedom now that comes from the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to do the things that please God that we couldn't do before, no matter how hard we tried in our own efforts. Paul says this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. There's liberty. There's true liberty. There's true freedom in being able to serve God the way he intended for us to do it. That's true liberty. True liberty. True freedom. And finally this, number three. When God opens our spiritual eyes, transformation begins to take place. So again, Paul comes back to where he began. It's all about changed lives, people. But here Paul says, 
This is how it happens. This is how change happens in the Christian life. So again, it's not just about decisions, it's about discipleship. It's about going on for Christ. It's about maturing in our relationship with Christ. It's about becoming more like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. If you read through uh, Romans 8, 29, you'll see that. This is what he says. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We with unveiled faces. That's describing a person who's come to Christ. That's just another way of saying he's a Christian. So if you're a Christian here this morning, this is about you and about me. Then the NIV says this, all reflect the Lord's glory. Now the word in Greek, I won't even try to pronounce it, it's a big long word. It can mean reflecting, but it can mean something else. Anyone know what, might, what some other versions, like the ESV says? Meditating, contemplating, beholding, okay? So it can have that sense as well. And I like that one because reflection tends to say to me that it's like a reflection as in a mirror, as though we're some passive, inanimate objects. You see, the degree to which the Christian displays the glory of Christ is something that we are actively engaged in too. When we come to Christ, we have no part in it except to turn to Christ God saves us by his grace. It's not through self-effort. It's entirely a work of grace. The Holy Spirit regenerates life in us, floods us with his life. But when it comes to being more like Christ, we have a part to play in that. So justification, when we come to Christ, we have a right standing with God. Sanctification talks about the journey to become more like Jesus, and it's a process. So I like the word contemplating, and so it would read like this, like the ESV says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. So what Paul is saying is this, the Christian life is one of continuing transformation. We don't just get to come to Christ and stay as we are, because if that's where we stay, there's a question, was your decision genuine? Now, that's not to say we don't sin. It's not to say we don't stumble. But it is to say that there should be transformation in the life of the believer to become more Christ-like. The way that it happens is as we behold and contemplate the glory of the Lord, in other words, when we're not occupied so much with ourselves, but we're occupied with Jesus Christ, when he becomes the focus of our love, our attention, our reading, our reflecting, As we think and contemplate the glory of the Lord, occupied with him, as we read the scriptures, for instance, and we see him on every page and we reflect and we submit to him, we submit to the scriptures and we allow that change to take place, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us changes us, changes us. And this marvellous transforming process takes place from glory to glory with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, God's work to bring about change. It's not instant. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. It's a process, not a crisis. So as we conclude, I just want to encourage you firstly to go wholeheartedly in as ministers, as servants of the new covenant, to share the gospel. The sharing is ours. 
responsibility. The saving is God's. To see that the gospel, this good news about Jesus, is far better, far more glorious than any other message that every other worldview presents to us today. We have a message of God's wonderful grace to share. So we, share, we should share it. And so here's the challenge. Will you, who will you pray for this week? Who, who is on your heart to share with in some way about what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done in your life? Testimony is a powerful thing. Who are you thinking of right now for this coming week? And finally, if the Christian life is about transformation to be more and more like Jesus, how are you going? And how are we going in helping others to see the gospel outworked in their lives? How are you going in helping me transform to be more like Jesus? What one area of your life are you struggling with where you can honestly say this is not Christ-like? And what are you going to do this week about that? One thing is needed above everything else, and that is to spend more time with the Lord Jesus. And when we ask for his time, you know he's different from us. We get busy, don't we? Sometimes we say no to hanging out or whatever it might be, but you know what? Jesus never says no. doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter what time of the day or night. He'll never say no to spending more time with him. Will you do that? Will I do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it challenges us even though it was written so many years ago. And yet the power in your word still comes to us with such great force even today. And so, Father, we just pray that as we've looked at these challenges of Christian ministry, what it really means to, to, to see success in ministry, to see changed lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, what our ministry is in terms of sharing the gospel and seeing that outworked in our lives and in the lives of others. Uh, Lord, we just pray too, as that last verse gives us this challenge of spending time with Jesus. Help us to do that this week. Help us to be the people, to be transformed into the people you want us to be. We can only do it by relying on you for your grace, for daily grace that we need to see us become more like Jesus. So we ask for your help and your blessing this week. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.